Gentlemen, open your text to page 21 of the introduction. Mr. Perry, will you read the opening paragraph of the preface entitled Understanding Poetry? Understanding Poetry by Dr. J. Evans Pritchard, PhD. To fully understand poetry, we must first be fluent with its meter, rhyme, and figures of speech, then ask two questions. One, how artfully has the objective of the poem been rendered? And two, how important is that objective? Question one rates the poem's perfection. Question two rates its importance. And once these questions have been answered, determining the poem's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. If the poem's score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph, and its importance is plotted on the vertical, then calculating the total area of the poem yields the measure of its greatness. A sonnet by Byron might score high on the vertical, but only average on the horizontal. A Shakespearean sonnet, on the other hand, would score high both horizontally and vertically, yielding a massive total area, thereby revealing the poem to be truly great. As you proceed through the poetry in this book, practice this rating method. As your ability to evaluate poems in this manner grows, so will, so will your enjoyment and understanding of poetry. Excrement. That's what I think of Mr. J. Evans Pritchard. We're not laying pipe, we're talking about poetry. How can you describe poetry like American bandstand? Well, I like Byron. I give him a 42, but I can't dance to it. Now, I want you to rip out that page. Go on. Rip out the entire page. You heard me. Rip it out. Rip it out! Go on. Rip it out! Thank you, Mr. Dalton. Gentlemen, tell you what, not just tear out that page, tear out the entire introduction. I want it gone. History, leave nothing of it. Rip it out. Rip. Be gone, J. Evans Pritchard, PhD. Rip, shred, tear, rip it out. I want to hear nothing but ripping of Mr. Pritchard. We'll perforate it, put it on a roll. Not the Bible, you're not going to go to hell for this. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Hope. Good to see so many uh, familiar faces. This is part of our regular routine every weekend, and it's good to see some faces I don't recognize. If you're new to Hope, a great big welcome to you. It's the beginning of a new year. It's the beginning of a new message series, and, and every year at Hope, we have an annual theme. This year, it's 12 books in 12 months, and we're going to just spend this year digging into the Bible, taking a look at 12 of the books of the Bible a little more closely. And so as we get started, and we'll probably have to come back to this idea a couple of times throughout the course of the year, I just want to make sure our motivation is in the right place as we do this. Why are we going to spend an entire year focusing in on Scripture? Mr. Keating, Robin Williams' character in that uh, movie Dead Poets Society, he has his students rip out the entire introduction uh, to a textbook on poetry. And they're a little nervous about it, so he has to give them permission. It's not like it's the Bible. It's not like you're going to go to hell. And so I just want to stop there for a second, because as we engage with Scripture, as we start focusing in on and challenging you to dig into the Bible a little bit more, I think there's a lot of people who have this kind of mindset around Scripture, that I don't really want to read the Bible. 
I don't like reading the Bible. I don't understand anything I read when I read the Bible. But I know I have to do it so that I don't go to hell. I know I have to do it so I don't get into trouble. And I just want to make sure we all understand up front, that's not why we're doing this. That's not our focus for the year. That's not why we're making it our focus. Why are we reading the Bible? I'll get to it kind of in a, a roundabout way. The social world of Jesus' day is fascinating to me. Uh, they live in Israel, but Israel's occupied by the Roman Empire, and part of what that means, there's two sets of laws that the people of Israel are trying to follow at the same time. There's the civic governmental laws of the empire, and then there's the Jewish religious laws that they're trying to follow as well that come from the pages of the Hebrew Scripture. So there was an entire group of people called the teachers of religious law. It was their job to know Scripture better than anyone else so that they can interpret for the rest of the people, here's what it looks like to follow, to live according to Torah, to live according to the way of life prescribed in the law, the law of Moses, the Old Testament scriptures, that sort of thing. Everybody in Jesus' day was impressed at the scriptural knowledge of the teachers of religious law. Everyone that is except for Jesus. There's this fascinating story at the beginning of John chapter 5. Uh, there's a man who has been lame, paralyzed, uh, unable to walk, in need of healing for 38 years. And he kind of hangs out beside a pool of water that supposedly has healing qualities. Jesus goes up to this guy, says, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. And it happens. It's this powerful miracle and everyone's kind of going crazy. Did you see what Jesus just did? Everyone's excited and impressed by this except for the teachers of religious law because it's the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath is a day of rest. You're not supposed to work. Well, what constitutes as work? It's the job of the teachers of religious law to determine that. And they've determined carrying your mat on the Sabbath is too much work. That's sinning. And so they, they tell this man, you're sinning by carrying your mat. He's kind of like, yeah, I know that's what scripture says, but the guy who healed me, I mean, I'm standing, I'm using my legs for the first time in 38 years. He told me to pick up my mat, so I don't really care what scripture says. I'm going to do what he says. They find out Jesus is the one who healed him. And John writes, they begin to harass Jesus. They begin to persecute Jesus because he's not following Sabbath law either. Well, Jesus listens to this for a little bit, and then he says excrement. No, he doesn't really say excrement. But he starts ripping them a new one, theologically speaking, for 30 verses. John chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through verse 47. Jesus is pointing out, and he's not, I mean, he is firm, he is intense, he is displeased as he's trying to explain to these teachers of religious law the way they have warped and distorted the word of God that they are missing the point when it comes to why do we read the Bible. And kind of the summary statement that Jesus makes is verse 39 and 40 of John 5. It's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Robin Williams says, tear out those introductory pages. Be gone, J. Evans Pritchard, PhD. Here's Jesus saying, be gone, teachers of religious law. You don't really understand the point of engaging with God's word, engaging with scripture. The point, the starting place for us, why we're spending a year focusing in on God's word, because it points to Jesus. We want to get to know Jesus better this year. Our goal by the time we get to December or next January, our goal is not that we would know the Bible more, although that might be a nice side effect. 
Our goal is that we would know Jesus better. It's the difference between being biblically literate and biblically fluent. You could be biblically literate. You could uh, know the Bible really well. You could take a, a Bible class in college and get a good grade on it, but not believe in Jesus, not trust Jesus, not have Jesus make any kind of difference in your life. You'd be biblically literate. But someone who is biblically fluent, that's a different kind of story. That's a relational kind of thing. If I'm fluent in French, I can go to France, I can engage in relationships with the people of France, I can learn to live in a French kind of way. If I'm biblically fluent, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, I can communicate with Jesus, I can learn to live more and more all the time in the place where Jesus lives, which is the kingdom of God. I can learn to live a Jesus way of life. And that gets us to the first book that we want to explore together this year, the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts, it tells the story of the birth of the church, the, the way the church grows and spreads over the Roman Empire in the decades following the resurrection of Jesus. It's written by Luke, same guy who writes the Gospel of Luke. And here's what Luke writes, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. During the 40 days after he suffered and died... He appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he, Jesus, talked to them about the kingdom of God. Forty days between the resurrection and his ascension, he spends a lot of time talking to his disciples. It says apostles here. Disciple means someone who follows Jesus. Apostle, someone who is sent by Jesus. He talks to his apostles about the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know what kind of images pop into your mind or, or words or phrases when you think of a kingdom, but one of the words is probably power. A kingdom is about power. Who has power? Who does not have power? Who's in control? Who, who gets to win or who gets to define what the win is. Jesus is talking to his apostles about this kingdom that he wants to build. And then he says to them, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait there for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And let's read together how the apostles respond to this, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Again, it's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Jesus' disciples, his apostles, have a very specific understanding of kingdom and, and maybe in particular kingdom power. They know Jesus is this really powerful guy. They've seen him do all these miracles. Also, he predicts his death and his resurrection and pulls it off. That's pretty powerful stuff. They know Jesus has power. He says, go to Jerusalem, wait there for the Holy Spirit. So they think this is going to be the power for Jesus to finally take on the, the Romans and defeat them and kick them out of Israel so that the land can be free, and the kingdom will be restored. And Jesus' response in verse 8 is kind of interesting. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The word that gets translated power, the, the Greek word, it's the same word where we get our English word dynamite. It's talking about this explosive kind of power. And it happens. In Acts chapter 2, we'll talk about it a little bit more next week, the Holy Spirit gets poured out and powerful, powerful, supernatural, miraculous signs and wonders start happening. People are being healed. People are speaking in tongues because of the power. It's, it's big and it's easy to recognize. But I wonder, just like it's so easy for us to miss the point when it comes to why do we read Scripture... I wonder if it's also easy for us to miss the point when it comes to the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Let's go back to the Gospel of John. In uh, chapter 5, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders about missing the point with Scripture. You turn the page to John chapter 6, and it's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is teaching. He's performing miracles. Great crowds are gathering around him. And in this particular instance, it says there's 5,000 men there. And so since they didn't count the women and children, scholars say it was probably more like 15,000, maybe 20,000 people in that crowd listening to Jesus, waiting to see what he's going to do or say next. What kind of powerful display. They're in the middle of nowhere. There's nowhere to get any food. Somehow Jesus is able to feed them with five loaves of bread and two fish. And the crowd goes wild. This is awesome. This, and there's even enough for leftovers. It's a cool and powerful story, so cool and powerful, often we don't pay any attention to how the story ends. Here's John chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw Jesus do this miraculous sign, when they saw this display of dynamic power, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. And then verse 15, when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Now, if the point of reading Scripture is to get to know Jesus better, what do we get to know Jesus from the way the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 ends? What do we get to know about Jesus? Part of what we start to see is maybe Jesus has a different understanding of power than the rest of us. Maybe Jesus has a different understanding of kingdom than the rest of us. Now, scholars will tell you, biblical scholars, Christian scholars, non-Christian scholars alike, they'll all tell you, the central focus of the teaching of Jesus is this idea of the kingdom of God. He begins his ministry by saying, the time has come, repent of your sins, follow after me. The kingdom of God is near, it's here, it is among you. And Jesus spends three years announcing the good news of the kingdom of God, teaching people, demonstrating what life is like in the kingdom of God. Uh, my favorite image this year from our Christmas Eve services, we built a little manger scene over there and put it up on some hay, and uh, Dave Austin took a picture of the manger and the cross and the Christmas tree, and it was, it was just great. What do we sing about at Christmas? We sing about the birth of Jesus, the newborn king. Jesus has come to be king. They're ready to crown him king, and he slips away quietly by himself. It's very interesting to me, 11 verses later, it's the next day, the crowd has found where Jesus is, and Jesus says to them, you're only following me because I fed you. You're only following me because of this big display of power. You don't really believe in me. You're not really interested in what I'm trying to do, and what he's trying to do is usher in the kingdom of God. Well, they could say, we're ready to crown you king, and then you leave. What's going on? Apparently, Jesus has a different understanding of power than the rest of us. And the, the kind of power they want him to display, the kind of king they want him to be, is not the kind of king Jesus came to be. Martin Luther, great reformer, uh, namesake of our church, Lutheran Church of Hope. He's looking at Jesus, and he's looking at the way Jesus understands power. And Luther makes this distinction between what he calls right-handed power and left-handed power. So right-handed power is the kind of power that is easy to recognize, it's brute strength, unstoppable force. We sang that song earlier in the service. Our God is the lion, right? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? This is right-handed power, right-handed power. Um, someone I was reading said the image for him when he's thinking about this right-handed power of God, 
It's the image of a hammer and a nail. You take a hammer and you use force, you apply force to hit a nail, and it creates the power to drive through a piece of wood. Right-handed power. It's all about application of force to get a result. Application of force to get a result. And it's not necessarily a bad kind of power, but it's different from left-handed power. Right-handed power, you think of institutional power or uh, hierarchical power, positional power. You use right-handed power and you can get a result in a hurry. Left-handed power is different. I came home on Thursday night. It was around dinner time. My wife was grilling steaks outside. And as soon as I stepped out of the car, I could smell the grill. And my mouth began to water, right? I don't typically, I don't think we think of smell as a power. Uh, But smell is really powerful. It it does things. It changes things. Now, those of you who love You cannot start your day without your cup of morning coffee. Sometimes it's just the sound of the coffee pot brewing, right? But then the smell, and it starts to change your mood, and it starts to wake you up even before you get the caffeine into your system. You walk through a kitchen when bed is breaking, and you get a whiff of that bread that is baking, and your mouth begins to water. You find yourself thinking, man, I'm hungry. I didn't even know I'm hungry. I'm ready to eat. Left-handed power. It... It's different than right-handed power. Right-handed power just kind of busts through the front door. Left-handed power sneaks in the side door. And it doesn't take very long before it's kind of permeated the entire house. It's creative. It's subtle. Somebody said uh, left-handed power is vulnerable power, which sounds kind of oxymoronic, doesn't it? Vulnerable power. You think about If you think about what it is you believe to be true about life, The ideas that you have about how life works, how relationships work, my guess is most of you arrived at those beliefs and those ideas through left-handed power. It wasn't somebody who just kind of forcefully said to you, here's what you need to do and here's what you need to believe. Instead, it might have been, I don't know, music that you listened to at a critical junction in your life or a book that you read or a movie that you watched or a teacher who was creative and, and found ways to keep you interested in ideas and thoughts and maybe a, even a different way of, of thinking about life than you had thought about life up to that point. And all of a sudden it all comes together, it coalesces, and now you have what you believe to be true in the ideas, the guiding principles of your life. So Mr. Keating, Dead Poets Society, trying to get a bunch of high school boys to love poetry, he knows that's, that's not good. He's not going to be able to force them to love poetry. So he tries to get as creative as he can. He tries to put out different opportunities and invite them to consider uh, uh, new alternatives, new ways of thinking, new ways of looking at, the life, uh, at life. And there is something compelling about the way he does this. Take a look. I know. A lot of you look forward to this about as much as you look forward to root canal work. We're going to talk about Shakespeare as someone who writes something very interesting. Now, many of you have seen Shakespeare done very much like this. Oh, Titus, bring your friend hither. <laughs> but if any of you have seen Mr. Marlon Brando... No, that Shakespeare can be different. France, Romans, countrymen. Let me rest. You can also imagine maybe John Wayne is Macbeth going, well, is this a dagger I see before me? <laughs> Dogs, sir? Oh, not just now. <laughs> I do enjoy a good dog once in a while, sir. 
you can have yourself a three-course meal from one dog. Start with your canine crudite, go to your Fido flambe for main course, and for dessert, a Pekingese parfait. And you can pick your teeth with a little pop. Why do I stand up here? Anybody? To feel taller. No. Thank you for playing, Mr. Dalton. I stand upon my desk to remind myself that we must constantly look at things in a different way. See, the world looks very different from up here. You don't believe me? Come see for yourselves. Come on. Come on. Just when you think you know something, you have to look at it in another way. Even though it may seem silly or wrong, you must try. Now, when you read, don't just consider what the author thinks. Consider what you think. Boys, you must strive to find your own voice. Because the longer you wait to begin, the less likely you are to find it at all. Thoreau said most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Don't be resigned to that. Break out. Don't just walk off the edge like lemmings. Look around you. There. There you go, Mr. Christie. Thank you. Yes. Dare to strike out and find new ground. So the invitation in the month of January is to read the book of Acts. In, in my Bible, the title actually says Acts of the Apostles. Uh, a lot of commentaries, biblical scholars will say it would be more accurate to refer to it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is at work empowering the apostles to be sent out and to do incredible things. And, and you see it starting to happen. So part of the invitation as you read through the book of Acts is to try to gain a new perspective. I try to look at the power of the Holy Spirit through a different lens, a new lens, a new perspective. Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Is he talking about left-handed power or right-handed power? Well, it's both. I mean, they do these incredibly powerful, dynamic kinds of things. But when you start to look closely at the way God exerts power, and we sang about it, right? God is a lion and God is a lamb. Right-handed power and left-handed power. In Jesus' own ministry, he begins with all these miracles and signs and wonders and attracting crowds, and, and pretty soon the crowds are coming just because they want to see the show. Show us another sign, Jesus. Show us another sign, Jesus. And he says, no, not, no more signs. Only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah who gets swallowed by a fish in the belly of the fish for three days and then is, is spit out. He's talking about the cross, his death and resurrection. That's the only sign that you're going to get from now on, Jesus says. So as we look into Scripture and how God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit works, part of what you see, the primary way that God works in this world and in our life is through this left-handed kind of power. Look what Paul says about the power of the Holy Spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit. What kind of power, what kind of dynamic, powerful thing is going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes? To fill our hearts with God's love. It's going to fill our hearts with God's love. First and foremost, the primary power of God is the power to know we are loved by God. And you might say that doesn't feel like a whole lot of power to me. And, and I get that. But I'm becoming more and more convinced all the time. When we talk about sin, we almost always talk about specific behaviors, right? Anger, greed, I don't know, lying, cheating, stealing, specific behaviors that are naughty, that we're not supposed to do. This is sin. Where do they come from? What about behaviors that we might call holy and righteous? Where do they come from? I think it 
comes from whether or not our heart is filled with God's love. The more our heart gets filled with God's love, the more it's going to have the power to direct our life in a certain kind of direction. But when we have these moments in our lives where we doubt, where we cannot trust for whatever reason, we cannot believe that God might love us, it has the power to guide our lives in a different kind of direction. The first and foremost power that the Holy Spirit gives us is the power to know, to believe, to trust in God's love for us and for that love to fill us up. Doesn't end there. Paul's going around starting churches all over the Roman Empire, has people helping him, co-workers. Uh, one of them is a guy named Epaphras in a place called uh, Colossa. And as Paul writes to that church in the book of Colossians, he says this, Colossians 1 verse 8, Epaphras has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So first, the power of the Holy Spirit is to fill our hearts with love, and then the power of the Holy Spirit is for us to learn how to love others well. And again, you might find yourself saying it doesn't feel very dynamic, supernatural, powerful, but when's the last time you tried to get someone to love you? And it didn't work. And you just couldn't quite figure out why. I mean, church, we cannot force anyone to love us. And you cannot force yourself to love someone else. You can do loving things for a while from sheer willpower, but long term, you and I don't have the power in us to love others well. We need that power from the Holy Spirit. And so, again, this power that God wants to give us is the power of love. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. And more often than not, love is a left-handed kind of power. You ask Paul, why are you going around starting all these churches and trying to tell the whole world about Jesus? He says, the love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ compels me. Once I got a whiff of Jesus, once I caught the vision for the life that Jesus is inviting us into, life in the kingdom of God, there was something so compelling, so attractive about that, that I wanted to follow Jesus and listen to everything that he has to say and watch everything that he does and ask for the whole, if he's going to give me the Holy Spirit, I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit so that I can live more and more, so that I can love more and more the way Jesus lived and the way Jesus loved. And that gets me to Alpha. You heard about it in announcements. You heard about it in the Hope 360. Uh, Alpha is something we offer around Hope on a pretty regular basis. A lot of you have taken it. In fact, go ahead and clap if you've taken Alpha at Hope. Yeah, a lot of people taken Alpha. There's nothing magical about Alpha. We'll give you some food. We'll eat a meal together. That's kind of cool. We'll sing some songs together. There'll be a talk. Uh, Eli or myself or Pastor Mike or one of the other pastors at Hope. And then you get in a group and you talk about it. And in the middle of Alpha, there's a weekend devoted to the Holy Spirit. Friday night and a Saturday, who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? How can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? And it's not this goofy kind of thing that I think a lot of us have ideas about when we start thinking about the Holy Spirit. It's the power to know that God loves us and the power to become people who love like Jesus more and more all the time. Maybe the time is right for you to take Alpha. This is the invitation. It starts uh, next week. Maybe the time is right for you to take Alpha. Maybe it's something else, a Bible study, uh, a men's or women's kind of thing. Uh, maybe it's a group. We've got all kinds of groups. Go through the catalog, see how you can get connected and growing. Who knows what it might be.
And now we've reached the so what moment of the sermon, right? So, okay, left-handed power, right-handed power, great. So what? How, how does it actually impact my day-to-day life? Well, here's some possibilities for you. I'm guessing most of the people in this room have a boss. Um, have you ever had a boss who primarily exercised right-handed power? Who was very much in love with the organizational chart and loved to remind you they were higher up than you were. They were the boss and you were not. When it came time for making decisions, they didn't really care about your ideas or or what you thought. They like to say, I'm the boss. This is the direction we're going. If you don't like it, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Not very many people can survive very long in a work environment like that. Most of us want to know that our boss actually values our ideas and our opinions and kind of uses them as they make directions for the sake of the organization that we're a part of. And of course there are going to be times when the leader has to make that decision. But if you've been a part of the process all along, it's a whole lot easier to go along with a decision that you don't necessarily agree with. How about, I don't know, parent-child relationships? Do you use left-handed power or right-handed power as you parent? Well, it's both. And, and a big part of what it means to follow after Jesus is to learn through discernment when is each required. And maybe in a simplistic way of thinking about it, the younger kids are, the more right-handed power you've got to exert. Don't play in the street. You know, stay away from fires. Don't tell your little sister that bug spray is hairspray, these kinds of things. But the older, that, not that that happened in our house, the older... <laughs> The older kids get, you, you can't force a teenager to do something. You can't force a college-age son or daughter, an adult son or daughter to do anything. I mean, maybe you can, but it's going to damage the relationship. Instead, if the relationship is the goal, if love is the goal, you invite them into a conversation where you explore possibilities and you talk about what might be the wise thing to do, what might be the wise decision to make, what might be the wise direction to go. Same is true in marriage. If the primary way you want to work in your husband-wife relationship is through the exertion of right-handed power, good luck. But the sad part is there's way too many Christians, particularly Christian husbands, who think the Bible has given me the authority to use right-handed power in my marriage. Wives submit to husbands. What a gross misreading of Scripture. Just a couple verses earlier, Paul, before he starts talking about different roles within a family, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The entire life of a follower of Jesus, single, married, husband, wife, the entire life is a life of submission, which biblically means use everything God has given you to get underneath the burden of someone else and help them up. It's not about how do I prop myself up, it's how do I help others, how do I get under their burdens. Because guess what Jesus did for us? When we're helpless at just the right time, while we are still sinners, Jesus leverages everything to get under the burden of our sin, and he dies for us. <laughs> uh, left-handed leadership is a painful death, and it's what you get invited into if you're serious about following Jesus. So here's the warning for you. If you Think about your experiences with power that you've had in your life or as you read through history books. More often than not, right-handed power is the kind of power that that wins the day. And it's easy to understand why. It's effective. It works, particularly in the short term. It gets things done. Left-handed power is open to the possibility that it's not going to work, that people are going to say no, that people 
will not follow you, believe you, do what you think we should do, or go where you think we should go. You certainly see that with Jesus. You, you also see it in Mr. Keating, uh, this character in the movie Dead Poet Society. He uses left-handed power all throughout the movie to try to help the boy see a, a different way, a, a new alternative, a, I don't know, a different kind of life. Some of them follow him, are excited about that, but not everyone is. And it ends up costing him his job, and there's this, you know, climactic scene at the end of it, oh, captain, my captain, and we're, we're going to watch it. But as you watch it, what I noticed this time as I watched it, I noticed how many of the boys were staying in their seats. In the, and, and take a, as you watch this, think about left-handed power, right-handed power, and in your heart of hearts, what feels like the most effective way to live life. Take a look. Gentlemen, turn to page 21 of the introduction. Mr. Cameron, read aloud the excellent essay by Dr. Pritchard on understanding poetry. That page has been ripped out, sir. Well, if I were somebody else's book. They're all ripped out, sir. <laughs> what do you mean, they're all ripped out? Sir, we... Never mind. Read. Understanding Poetry by Dr. J. Evans Pritchard, Ph.D. To fully understand poetry, we must first be fluent with its meter, rhyme, and figures of speech, then ask two questions. One, how artfully has the objective of the poem been rendered? And two, how important is that objective? Question one rates the poem's perfection. Question two rates its importance. And once these questions have been answered, determining the poem's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. If the poem's score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph... Mr. The Keating, they made everybody sign Anderson. Anderson. You gotta believe me, it's true. I do believe you, Tom. Leave, Mr. Keating. But it wasn't his fault. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. One more outburst from you or anyone else, and you're out of this school. Leave, Mr. Keating. I said leave, Mr. Keating. Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. You hear me? Sit down. Sit down. This is your final warning, Anderson. How dare you? You hear me? Your captain, my captain. Mr. Overstreet, I warn you. Sit down.
So if you stick around hope for very long, you'll hear me talk about the importance of paradox as it relates to living a Christian life. Martin Luther says, left-handed power is precisely paradoxical power. Power that looks for all the world like weakness. Looks like a God who is born in a manger. Looks like a leader who comes to serve rather than to be served. It looks like a son of God who goes to the cross and dies out of love for the world. And we remember the power of that love when we come to the Lord's table. We remember the night he was betrayed, Jesus took some bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. It's my body given for you. Eat this and remember me when you eat it. Later in the meal, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. To forgive you for all those times when you doubt and when you, for whatever reason, cannot trust God's love for you. Drink this and remember that love when you drink it. Let's stand together and let's pray the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated.